You know, um, as, a, as, a, as a preacher, in particular as a preacher, also as a pastor, as a preacher and a teacher, I know that judgment, condemnation, and hell are unpopular subjects. And they're often hard to explain, if not hard to explain by concept. They're hard to receive by emotion. But because the Bible does not ignore these things, neither should we. It is why I have a deep hell conviction, and I share it with our elders, that we should always teach and preach through books as much as possible. There we can, as teachers and preachers, avoid the temptation to skip over subjects and passages, especially, especially when you've announced a way ahead of time that we're teaching through a, a passage. People can look at it, and if you try to skip over it, a good congregation will be like, yo, why did you skirt around that issue? And then people who are struggling with certain issues would think, uh, oh, they did that just for me. And we can say, oh, no, we came up with this plan some time ago, and that's just where we landed. And the Holy Ghost brought you to this moment so you could be convicted. We didn't have enough sense to go that far ahead. Like, I'll go ahead and tell you, John, Daniel, and Revelation are up to bat in the coming months and 20 years. And um, thank you. I was hoping somebody would get that. And they're going to talk about all kinds of very difficult things. And um, just reading through John a lot lately, I'm, I'm already getting the holy boot in my unholy behind on a regular basis. So tonight's a tough subject. It's talking about judgment. I want to share a short two-paragraph quote from John MacArthur that I think is, he says it better and way more succinctly than I could. Listen to this. Follow along with me if you, because uh, I want to talk fast. Hell is certainly not a popular concept in Western society. In an age of tolerance and acceptance, the topic of eternal punishment is taboo. The very mention of it is considered unloving. After all, postmodern culture believes that everyone is basically good and expects that life after death, if the life afterlife even exists, includes heaven for all but the most evil people. He continues, sadly, the political correctness and doctrinal ambiguity that characterizes the world has also permeated the church. Even among those who call themselves evangelicals, hell is regarded as a theological embarrassment. Passages that teach eternal destruction are often explained away, arbitrarily softened, or ignored altogether. As a result, society's erroneous views about God's judgment are only reinforced. I have searched my heart, and without one ounce of anger or judgment, I will just simply say, I will not explain away judgment or hell. I will not soften the blow. I will not ignore it. The Bible says what it says, and I'm called to preach what it says. As Spurgeon said, the Bible could be compared to a sleeping lion. Wake it up. It'll defend itself. We're going to wake up a passage on judgment tonight. It will be difficult. It will be difficult. But as difficult as it is to preach this passage, it is equally delightful to preach the hope of Christ. If I were a Noah 
plugging away for a hundred years to build a boat for a storm that would cover the whole earth with not one ounce of rain had ever been seen, I would also be building the boat that mankind could get into. Were I that Noah, and I'm not, I don't even want to live 120 years, but were I that Noah tonight, I will tell you judgment's coming, but I will also hold out the ark of Christ, who is yet to this day very open and willing to receive those who would avert themselves from disaster. Let's pray. Father, as we read this passage tonight and unfold some thoughts, we humbly ask that you give us a receiving spirit. Not that we necessarily hear from me, but that we hear from the scriptures, that we hear as the oracles of God, the word of God, and we know it's from God. And that, Father, we both hear with a somber spirit the warning of the scriptures and we hear with a receptive spirit the gospel of Christ. In Jesus I pray, amen and amen. Three short verses, very heavy. Jude chapter 1 beginning at verse 14. I was also about, no, excuse me, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. In just a moment, we're going to come back to Jude. But let me share with you guys some opening thoughts about judgment, about the coming judgment. There is a future judgment, and I agree with several theologians. I've put this list together through the work of several theologians. I agree with it. Let me share this very quickly. Seven big things, but very quickly. First, judgment will begin with the second coming of Christ. When Christ returns, he is going to wrap up the open door, and the door will begin to close forever. And he will judge all mankind, all mankind. Just to give you a sample verse, you can actually find this all over the New Testament and even in the Old Testament, but consider Acts 17, 31. Because he has a fixed day, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Three quick things, a fixed day, judgment's coming. The judgment will come by a man. And if you have trouble identifying that man, who was resurrected from the dead? Who was it? Jesus. Who will the judgment be by? It will be by Jesus. You're not going to be judged by Tim. Who? Everybody's relieved, right? We're not going to be judged by the president at any point or a political party. We're not even going to be judged by what we think. Our opinions won't stand. We'll be judged by Jesus. It's a fixed day coming, and it comes through Jesus at his appearing. This is when, honestly, somebody should quote the great theologian Scooby. What would he say at this moment? Right, right. Secondly, judgment will be general and public. Of all the things we try to keep under wraps, 
And even of all the things that we should be ashamed of, we make public, every shame will be public in the end of times. Again, a sampler. There's all kinds of verses. In my, in my study notes, I think I have on average probably 15 passages per thought here, but I'm sharing one. From Matthew chapter 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered who, church? All the nations. And all the nations and the peoples of those nations will be put into two categories. Do you see them here in the passage? He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. All nations, every person will be separated into one of these two categories. Not only will it be general and public, but guess what? It will be just and impartial. Just and impartial. It will not matter on this day what color your skin is, and it will not help you what color your skin is. It will not help you that you have the highest degree attained from the highest university or can't even write your own name. It will not matter if you are rich or poor or middle class. It will not matter, matter if you're famous or unknown. It will not matter on that day how good you've been by anybody's definition of good. We will be judged by Jesus. It will be a just judgment. Romans 2.11 says, For God shows no partiality. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, Genesis 18, 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so there's a righteous fair as the wicked. This is, this is Abraham having a conversation with God. This is pretty cool. For, far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Abraham depended on God to do what is right, and he will. He will do what is right. Sometimes people will ask me about loved ones who have gone on and you are unclear about where they were with the Lord, this is always the verse I quote. I trust God to do what is right. Somebody say amen. Fourthly, the promise of divine judgment is intended to be a warning. I won't say much about that because I want to read sort of a long passage. Hang through this whole passage with me. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 23. Oh, wow, I made it that small. Hmm, sorry. <laughs> Fortunately, it's much larger on my paper. <laughs> Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as what, church? You see the day approaching. You ever want to know why you should faithfully gather? We remind each other there's a judgment day approaching. One of the many reasons, I would say. Verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Read 31 with me. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do you get that? You can be put to death by breaking a law written on stone. How much worse will it be to have profaned Jesus? Fifthly, God's judgment is based on his law. James chapter 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all, of all of it. Let me see if I can give you an illustration. If you break a vase to smithereens, the vase is broken. If you chip a vase, the vase is broken. When it is no longer whole, it is broken. Sixthly, God's final judgment will occur in specific phases. This is where I should do a sermon series, but I'm not. Let me just give you a quick overview picture. The tribulation will come, and God will unleash wrath on the ungodly. And in many ways, the godly will be caught up in this as martyrs and victims of the ungodly. There will be a battle of Armageddon. The earthly kingdom will be set up. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. And at the end of the earthly kingdom, Satan will be loosed for one final rebellion where he and all of those with him will be finally and fully defeated and cast into the lake of fire forever. Then will come the final judgment, the great white throne judgment, which is the final sentencing. So you might say there are phases of how judgment will begin, and it will begin on earth, but then it will move to the heavenly realm and be finished in heaven. And um, it sounds terrifying. It is terrifying. Read Daniel, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, the book of the Revelation. It is genuinely frightening to fall into the hands of the living God. 1st Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, and some verses following. Listen to this. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring him Bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So he wants to give us encouragement about our believing relatives who have died before he returns. Awesome. Continuing, verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left unto the coming of the Lord, will not pre precede those who have fallen asleep. Now get this. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage each other, with the, one another with these words. What's my point here? My point is simple. Judgment's coming, it's coming in phases, and the only hope of safety is Jesus. The only hope. The only hope for the living is Jesus. The only hope for anyone that's ever died is Jesus. Seventh, and finally, on these future judgment realities, God's retribution ultimately results in eternal damnation in hell. 
Now, let me address something that's pretty common. A lot of people like Jesus, and they tend to think he was always just a nice guy. I would say Jesus was never not kind, but we mistake what God's kindness is. So to think Jesus only ever spoke about bunny rabbits, daffodils, and and love is to totally mistake Jesus. Somebody should have said amen. As a matter of fact, he taught on the concept of judgment and hell more than he taught on love. You know why? Because he wanted us to escape it. Matthew 13, 40 through 43, these, these are his words. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Hell is real. Judgment is coming. Christ is our hope and he is the judge. Every person will stand either in him or out of him. In him is safety forever. Out of him is damnation. Now to Jude. Two big thoughts tonight from this passage in Jude. First is this. It is the divine destiny of the ungodly to be condemned. If you look at verse 14, we we, we just see clearly here. Condemnation was prophesied. I, it, this, was, this was not something new. I remember a few years ago, there was a certain teenager riding down the road with me, and they were being silly. I know it's hard to imagine a teenager being silly, right? And they kept hanging both of their arms and their head with their mouth wide open out of the passenger side window. Now, it was one of those years where there were more June bugs than there were all the other kinds of bugs known to mankind around. And I was laughing at him. I said, you, you look like a dog hanging out there window. I said, he said, I like having my tongue in the wind. And I said, you're going to get a June bug in your mouth. Well, we rode all the way out to uh, Heiko, went swimming. We were coming back. It was a, it was a My Life Matters thing. We we're coming back. They were doing it again. And all of a sudden, <coughs> call me Isaiah. He had a June bug in his mouth. Matter of fact, it had bypassed his mouth. It was in his throat. (laughs) What was hilarious is by the time they finally got it out, we had got to their driveway. They were crying, you know, and and they said, I believe that was a June and a July bug. (laughs) (laughs) There are some things that you delight in being right about. I was so happy to be right that day. It was hilarious. for much longer than a summer season or a ride across the county and back. Since before the days of Noah, there has been a message ringing across humanity. Look at verse 14. Behold, the Lord come. That means there's going to be a reckoning where God is going to come meet with people. Now, This is before the flood. 
Did the Lord come at the flood? No, the Lord sent. He sent a flood. If the whole flood could excuse me, destroy the whole earth, what can the God who could send a flood do when he shows up personally? Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5 says this, And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of my mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. And there's several other verses, and one even says he's coming with the saints. What does that mean? Well, in the, Hebrew, in the Greek, it means the holy ones. But he could have meant his people and the angels, or just his angels, or, but not just his people, because he's coming with his angels. Anybody, I don't know if anybody will admit to this, because you'll show you're a sinner, a terrible, rotten sinner. Anybody seen that Patrick Swayze movie called Next of Kin? Anybody? Dale, Dale's way, doing like this. He, like I wasn't going to say your name, Dale. You can't, if you raise your hand, like I'm going to say your name first. Well, he's some guy from the mountains. He's a hillbilly type guy. He's, he's in Chicago where he's become a detective. And his, his hillbilly brother's up there, two of them. Or, you know, and, and one of them gets killed by some mafia guys. He goes home to bury him. And the next thing you know, all of his hillbilly kinfolk are coming up to Chicago. And, uh, and they mad. They're going to kill these. And, you know, I don't know who made this movie, but I always thought they missed a golden opportunity when they were showing all of them arriving in the city. They should have been, should have been singing, got a shotgun, a rifle, and a four-wheel drive, and a country boy can survive. Because they come up there and whooped the mafia. One old boy was driving a school bus full of snakes. Yeah, they were some of them snake handling folks. And they trapped one of the mafia guys in the school bus. I never understood that scene. He had a gun. I'd have been eating snake before the night was over. And I'm telling y'all. I've always sort of pictured that. You know, I, my mama's one of 12. Her mama's one of 14. Her daddy's one of 11. If I ever get in trouble, they're going to come on school buses full of snakes and, you know, go-karts and mopeds. Uh, I, I mean, my people are going to show up rusted out logging trucks, you know. There'll, there'll be a whole set of teeth between the whole clan. We'll be ready to do some damage, right? Can, can we even imagine what it's going to look like for God to show up with his angels? Can we even imagine it? If one angel can strike terror into the heart of man, what will it be like when God shows up in his majesty with a host of angels? Now, bit of housekeeping. Jude quotes an apocryphal book. He quotes 1 Enoch. As a matter of fact, it's 1 Enoch chapter 1, verse 9. It's not part of the canon. Why does God do this? God wants to bring in something that, that the whole thing of it didn't belong in the Bible, but this one thought God had given a man and he wanted it in the Bible. This happened several times. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, the apostle Paul quotes two poets, two different poets, Epivanitas and Erastus, Eratus. In other words, some thoughts God gives to other people and draws them into the Bible. Don't be confused by this. He had given this thought to whoever wrote Enoch, and it wasn't Enoch. 
And this thought just remained true. What thought is it? Quote, word for word, verses 14 and 15. In other words, you might say even non-biblical sources had this revelation. It's like God said, I want to make sure everybody gets this. I'm a coming. It's not like we have not been warned. He will come. He will not come alone. He will come to judge. Secondly, condemnation is just. It's just. If you look at verse 15, he uses some form of the word ungodly four times. He says this is who he's coming to get. He's coming to convict. That means to expose, rebuke, and prove guilty. I wish, uh, is, I, I don't want to, I wish Mark Pickerel was here tonight. So recently we had a boy, we had a boy getting some trouble at the warehouse. And if you ever come to the warehouse, surprise, there's cameras everywhere. Because they're everywhere because kids lie. I know everyone thinks your children are perfect, but they were born dead in their trespasses and sin, and they know how to execute it. I've been working with them a long time. Am I right, Brett? This boy punched a boy in the face. He was standing closer to me than I am to Carson, and I missed it. I didn't see it. We had to go look at the camera. He said the kid surprised him, and he'd done like this. We looked at the camera. He did not. He was walking around talking to people. And he swung and hit that boy in the face. Frontal assault. I think he swung on purpose. I think he did not connect on purpose. God's honest truth. He looked surprised when he connected. We watched the video, Mark and I, Mark and Jake Dunkley and I, and we go, hey, boy, just flat lied to us. The next morning when he comes in, we say, hey, would you like to tell us this story again? To his credit, he told the exact same story. It's his lie, and he believed it. No joke, Mark walks the boy into the room where you can see the camera screens. He shows it to him, and the kid says, y'all change that. <laughs> now, Mark, he's a parent. He's old. He's cool as a cucumber. He just starts to question the boy, and he asks him this really intriguing question. He says, what's one thing that would clear all this up? And the boy says, if I just told the truth. I'm a terrible person, and I swung at him. How many of us, without the virtue of honest replay, shape how that went as a lie? What God is going to do is he's going to execute judgment and convict. He is going to expose, rebuke, and prove guilty. And whether it's our own personal delusion or one that we are wrapped up in because our culture has departed from God, he is going to judge. And he's going to unjudge, he's going to, excuse me, judge the ungodly. Did you notice how many times the word was used in one verse? Ungodly, 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 ungodliness. What does that mean? The word really means not having proper reverence. So it's a position of one's heart and mind that erupts into the deeds of one's hands. And he's going to say, you can't tell me you loved me if you did this. I'll show you you didn't know me, love me, or obey me. I'll show you what was in your hearts by showing you what was on your hands. And we won't be able to argue 
Lastly, the ungodly are condemned because of their deeds, and that's where I was leading. I, I, I see the time. Let me just wrap it up so we can, we can close on the gospel. If you look in verse 16, he says they're grumblers and malcontents. And what's really interesting here is he's, he's really talking first and foremost about people who have crept into churches, crept into the assemblies of the body of Christ. And do you notice how he identifies them as grumblers and malcontents? You know, you, you know, you know, what, you know what he's really getting at? They complain about a lot of stuff, and they're not content. And that sort of gets told to people, but who they're really wrestling with is God. Wow. They complain without shame, is what he's saying. And then the second thing is they cater to the sensual. Where do you get that, preacher? They follow their own sinful desires. If it feels good, do it. Doesn't, doesn't that describe our culture right there? If it feels good, do it. I like to ask people why they do things. I like to ask myself that too. I'm not letting me off the hook. <laughs> and uh, people will give you all these kinds of wild explanations. Sometimes I just wish someone said, because I wanted to. I was just doing what I wanted to do. And I'm not going to name any examples, but I could, I could do a ton of them. You know, I could. We just do what we want to do. What it really reveals is that we're not content with God and we're saying to God, we're not, you're not going to be the boss of me. We don't have a reverence for him in our heart and it manifests in our words and in our deeds. And finally... Finally, we become loudmouth boasters showing favoritism. What's that mean? It means we gather folks around us to agree with us in our wrong. I'll never forget, I had a 78 Dodge Diplomat. All right, this, this is not a brag. That was just a car I was on. And um, at the time, I, I used marijuana all the time. It was against the law, 100%. But I never did it when I was driving. And if I had done it, I would not drive until I was sober. Now, people thought I had a moral thing about that. I didn't. Uh, I, did, I didn't want a DUI. Like, duh, right? Duh. I also didn't want to kill someone. Duh. So we're riding down the road one day with one of my mama's brothers. And he's trying to fire up a marijuana cigarette. And I say, No. He says, well, the windows are down. You're not going to get high. I say, dude, you're not smoking a joint in my car. You're just not. Well, there's two other guys in the back seat. He gets them on his side. I'm driving. They're all arguing. We go right by Ronnie's Appliance, where Ronnie's Appliance is. I didn't even pull into Ronnie's Appliance. I stopped dead in the middle of 501. I said, all y'all get out. This is my car. I paid the insurance. Get out. Well, the other two, they immediately got in line because they thought, I don't want to walk. My uncle's like, I ain't, I, I, I walk. I'm like, bye. And he says, what you going to tell your mama when you don't show up without me? I'm going to say, he's walking. <laughs> I don't care what my mama, your sister says, you walking. He couldn't understand. I was like, 
remember, this wasn't moral. This wasn't moral. I wasn't a moral person. If your car smells like weed and a cop ever stops you, they remember your car. You, you know, that's called common sense. Even dumb sinners have some common sense. Somebody say amen. My uncle already hadn't had license in 100 years. He could care less if I lost mine. Why do I tell you this story? The other two dudes wanted to smoke a joint. They refused reason. They refused authority. Because they just wanted to smoke a joint. I can't tell you how much I see people just wanting to smoke a joint in life. It's got nothing to do with marijuana. They join in with the crowd that wants to do what they want to do to justify doing whatever you want to do. What we're challenged with through the book of Jude is this simple. Do you reverence God and is there evidence that you're on the same page with him? Because there's surely going to be evidence when you weren't. In closing, I would say this. I, I truly hope you can see the Old Testament imagery in, in, uh, in Noah. In Noah. He builds this ark and everyone that's on the ark. Not just everyone, everything. As a matter of fact, commercial. Go to the Ark Encounter up in northern Kentucky sometime. It's, it's fantastic, right? I mean, it really is. It'll just open your eyes to what all could have fit on there. It's a fantastic trip. Everything on the Ark survived the storm. But everyone and everything on the Ark was on God's plan. They were not trying to create their own plan. And if you read that account, what's sort of cool is they got on and God sealed the door. God shut it and sealed the door. So the work was completely of the Lord's. Somebody saying, well, Noah built it. Noah built it as a testimony. God didn't need Noah to build that stinking boat. He built it as a testimony. Day by day, he was testifying with his works. He got on the boat. His wife got on the boat. His sons got on the boat. And their wives got on the boat. And if anyone else got on, the Bible doesn't tell it. Matter of fact, it says it's just them. And two of every unclean animal, five of every clean animal. Somebody wants to know why they could only eat what was clean. They could only worship with what was clean. So God sent an abundance of what was clean so they could eat, so they could survive in the two ways humans need to survive, eating and worshiping. Ain't he brilliant? I hope you can see that Jesus is our ark. The Bible says if you believe on Jesus, that means his works, that he lived a sinless life, that he died a substitutionary death, that he was really buried, that he defeated death, rose from the grave, was seen of many witnesses, and ascended back to the Father. If you believe on the works of Jesus, you will be saved from the wrath of God and the ultimate judgment of God. The Bible says if you believe on Jesus and receive him. Now, what's that part? It says, your works stand for me, and now you're the Lord of me. And you're going to be Lord of all the issues of my life, how I spend my money, how I spend my time, what I do, what I think, what I say. I want you to be the boss of it. And the Bible says you'll be adopted into the family of God. You say, wait, now, isn't everyone a child of God? No, everyone's a creation of God. You have to be adopted to be a child of God.
Judgment's coming. Jesus will return. Judgment's coming. His angels will come with him. <clears throat> Hell is real. Are you safe in the ark? Have you put your faith in Christ? Have you made him Lord? If so, you're safe. Now, are you blaspheming the Holy One? Are you living like Jesus is Lord? And if you've not made him Lord, I'm telling you, he's a wonderful master. But he's the master. He's wonderful. He takes every rotten thing in us, covers it, and then works to drive it out. That's a good, good father right there. Do you know him today? Have you made your profession of faith public? Have you obeyed him under baptism? Are you regularly a part of a local church where you can be held accountable and offer gifts through how the Holy Spirit's working in you? There's all kinds of decisions that could be made here. But the question that God has for every one of us is do we reverence him? And is that proven in how we live? Or do we not reverence him? And that's proven in how we live. Let's pray. God, thank you for an opportunity to tell the truth about the coming judgment. Thank you, too, that we get to share the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves. I am so comforted, Father, to know that Jesus invites those who are weary of enjoying sin who are weary of resisting the Savior, who are weary of being victims of Satan. He invites them to come. Come under his wing, exchange yokes. It's not that there's not a burden. It's just our burden kills us. His burden saves us. I pray, Father, that you encourage the body of Christ. I pray you challenge any soul that is not safe in Jesus tonight. I pray you call them to yourself. In Jesus we pray, amen and amen.